Dr. Balbert, the two-winner brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making not his weekly Monday appearance, but in fact a special exclusive Wednesday appearance, an exclusive Wednesday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It is a fact widely acknowledged uh, that in all of his appearances on Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball owing to the winter meetings and the flurry of transaction activity that they have created it appears as though the only way for Cameron to analyze all baseball is to appear twice this week on Fangraphs Audio. Thus, the existence of this edition of the podcast. In what follows, Cameron looks at the deal that sent Jeff Samarja to the White Sox, what that does for the White Sox. Looks at uh, the same deal, the, the same deal that sent Marcus Semyon to Oakland, and what that trade in general uh, says about the trade value of a star like Samarja, or uh, smaller pieces like Semyon etc. And of course, Cameron does not omit uh, at all, and in fact, it discusses in some depth the Cubs signing to a six-year, $155 million deal of John Lester, not looking at it merely from the Cubs' point of view, but also examining uh, the reality or not of the Red Sox' interest in that left-handed pitcher. They really did plan on topping out at $135 million, which is what multiple sources of, uh, or multiple people have confirmed was their final offer. They weren't going to sign him. He wasn't going to take $135 million. It was pretty well understood that he was going to get $150 million plus. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Monday, I guess. Yeah, 46 hours ago? 45 yeah. hours ago? Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess what, the not the absolute most recent, but um, uh, in terms of if we're weighted for importance, is the John Lester signing, which I see that Charlie Wilmoth at MLB Trade Rumors was making comments at 2.51 a.m. Was that, when did this deal actually happen? Uh, it got reported at about 1.40 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, is when the Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan and a few others uh, officially said that Lester had chosen the Cubs. Is that – I know you, you have a sort of amusing anecdote about sharing uh, – well, about passing the time with some Boston writers who were maybe, uh, as adults do, in the evening. They were enjoying some, some adult beverages, uh, and then there was a deal sent in. Is there – is it like pretty standard for these deals to occur when everybody's asleep or ought to be? Yeah, this is normal protocol for the winter meetings. It seems like every single year some deal happens at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, you know, basically, uh, my, my plan last night was, uh, I had to file a Fox piece for today and I filed it around, you know, one thirty or so and I was going to, uh, stay up after I filed that piece until the Lester news broke so I could put up a, a quick post on Fangraphs, and uh, thankfully the Lester news broke while I was writing the Fox piece, so I didn't have to stay up entirely too much later. Uh, and uh, with Jeff Sullivan in San Diego on West Coast time, I was able to hand it off to him and actually go to bed. But uh, you know, this is a this is a pretty normal occurrence. Teams uh, often reach deals towards the end of the evening, or they complete things that they've been working on uh, kind of at the end of the day. And since the winter meetings are in the, on the West Coast uh, today, that was oh, only, uh, you know, 10.30 uh, San Diego right. time. Not un- uh, extraordinarily late right. uh, for teams to be working uh, at the hotel there. Yeah, but still, still, it's just not really convenient for anybody, in particular those parties who are compelled to report the news. But even, 
I don't know. It's the 1030. I'm not like a particularly useful person. I mean, or even less useful than, yeah, I, all right, you say it. Do you want to say it? AM, PM. I mean, yeah. no, I, I'm not sure that yeah, okay. uh, there's right. so many jokes here. Yeah, yeah, all right. Um, but less useful than usual. Uh, I wonder, has there ever been, because haven't there been studies, the studies that have looked at uh, to what degree ballplayers are effective on various amounts of sleep? Uh, I think there has been some sleep studies that show a bit of a hangover or a, maybe not, that's the wrong word, maybe a, a little bit of a travel effect yeah. uh, after cross-country flights uh, or, you know, um, long uh, overnight flights, especially where a team doesn't have the off day. Uh, I think there has been some uh, noticeable effect. Uh, and in talking with some players, uh, especially as they get older, I think they've noticed that the, the, the sleep can have a significant impact on them, which is one of the reasons why team schedule get away day games, right? If, they, if you're traveling across the country, often the last game of the, the previous series will be like 12 or 1 o'clock start so that teams can get out of their, you know, dinner time essentially and try to get to the new the new city in time to get a reasonable night's rest. Yeah, all right. So the, well, anyway, the terms for uh, the terms for Leicester are 6, 155, is that right? Yeah, 155 million. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, how is this comparing to what, uh, I don't know, what the crowd said, what you said? Uh, the crowd was low, as usual. I think the crowd is at 132 for six mm, years. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was at 145, so I was a little closer, but still 10 million low. Uh, I think yeah, this is basically what people expected, though. I mean, they, you know, for various reasons we've discussed before, the crowdsource project always comes in low. Uh, but I think if you would have just polled, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15 random baseball people and said, what do you think John Lester's going to get this winter? The general consensus that I got was around 150 million. Uh, and since, you know, there were so many teams involved, see him get an extra 5 million, not a huge surprise. Right. And there's also a vesting option. Is that true? Yeah. I think most of these deals often contain, uh, um, a deal at the back end where what is likely is that I'm guessing there's like a $5 million buyout or, or something along those lines. So maybe it's going to be either 6150 or 7170, depending on how healthy he is at the end of the contract. So are there any currently uh I mean this 6 years sounds like a lot for a pitcher. Uh what is the what what are some comparable lengths of contracts that have been signed of late? Uh well I think you look at the you know Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke and Felix Hernandez and David Price and you know pitchers of this ilk or at least uh, you know in the ilk that John Lester's agents would like teams to believe that he's in uh have been signing 6 and 7 year deals with without too much of a uh, a pushback. I mean, this is kind of the accepted length for a frontline starting pitcher, and based on what John Lester did last year, he's he's got an argument to say that he is a frontline starting pitcher. He's probably not as good as uh, you know Hernandez or Kershaw, or, uh, but you know he's he's in there the the Granky range certainly, and I don't think this is an unreasonable length. I think you can maybe quibble with the fact that Lester might not be a twenty six million dollar a year pitcher, uh, especially. If, if, you know, you're the Red Sox or the Cubs or one of these teams that, you know, maybe needs multiple upgrades, uh, you know, could you buy two pitchers for, you know, half the price and, and come out ahead possibly? Uh, but, uh, you know, I think with what we've seen and how much players are costing this offseason, it's hard to say that this is definitely an overspend until we see what the alternative sign for. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, James Shields asking price just went up a little bit. The, I, I don't, I'm a dummy for, I mean, I suppose I've, observed this i never said it out loud or asked you certainly but there must it does appear as though there's a strong correlation between average annual value and the length of contracts does that make sense yeah absolutely no one signs really high money deals on short term i mean it just 
you know, besides like Roger Clemens, who would unretire in the middle of the season, uh, you don't see guys signing for more than twenty million a year for less than five, four or five years. Is it is it linear? Is it exponential? Uh, it's probably pretty close to exponential. I would say, you know, you're looking at, you know, five million a year, six million a year. Almost all those are going to be one or two year deals, uh, usually for bench guys or relievers. And then once you start climbing, uh, you go from, you know, one to two, two to three years, up to six to seven pretty fast without a huge bridge in between. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, I saw some comments to the effect of, uh, people, I saw some hot takes, uh, Dave Cameron, uh, people suggesting that perhaps, the Red Sox would would really be regretting this because they could have signed Lester for something like 115 at the beginning of the 2014 season or that you know the 13-14 off season. Um, my reaction to that is perhaps, but perhaps uh, of course the, the difference is that there's another year of John Lester data uh, to look at. So what, I mean, do, are the Sox privately regretting this, or is it just something they wouldn't have done because that that extra year was is somehow significant? I, so I think the Red Sox screwed up. I mean, I'll just put the, you know, in general, I think if you look at the ridiculous four-year, $70 million offer they made him in the in the preseason, which kind of led to him saying he would take a discount to stay in Boston to kind of his screw you, now you have to pay full price posture, there was no reason for them to think that 470 was a reasonable, fair offer. Um, I think even back when we were ballparking things before his breakout year, um, you know, I developed a simple, a fairly simple model that estimated the Lester should be worth, I think it was 598 or something, something along those lines, and suggested that the numbers were probably too low. Uh, I was just reading this morning, Dan Zimborski did a piece for ESPN, uh, back in, uh, February, I believe it was, or before the season started, certainly, uh, when the, when the 470 offer came out, and he, his projection system had Lester 6145 at the time, before Lester's big season. Um, so I think it was pretty clear that the, the Red Sox initial offer, uh, was terrible. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, I think, like, realistically, in wondering, uh, I love to wonder what the Red Sox have been doing with Lester all along, because if they really did plan on topping out at 135 million, which is what multiple sources of, uh, or multiple people have confirmed was their final offer, they weren't going to sign him. He wasn't going to take $135 million. It was pretty well understood that he was going to get $150 million plus. Uh, if they were going to be 15 to $20 million less than the next highest bidder, they were again asking John Lester to give them a pretty significant Boston discount uh, when they'd already kind of played that card and, and it didn't work out so well for them. Um, my, my wonder is why they spent you know the last month or two trying to publicly court him and get their fans' hopes up. And even though a few days ago John Farrell was talking about that he had strong hopes they would be able to re-sign Lester if they weren't even really going to be that competitive in the bidding. Yeah, because, uh, well, I mean, players certainly do offer discounts sometimes. Uh, I mean, do we do you have a sense of the magnitude of those discounts if we're not necessarily – if we're not taking into account uh, extensions, which we've seen a lot of younger players sign to? Yeah, and I think once you get on the free agent market, we don't see that many – uh, you know, players walk away from the highest offer. Or if they do, it's, it's often for reasons that make the deals not that dissimilar. So, you know, there's a report that the Giants, if they would have made their best offer, uh, might have pushed up to 168 million over seven years for Lester, uh, which would be 13 million more than what he signed with the Cubs. But once you take 
taxes into account. California's income tax is much higher. Uh, the, the deal actually turned out lower. His take-home pay would have actually been less. So, you know, from one perspective, you can say, oh, well, he left money on the table. From the other perspective, you can say, well, he's actually getting more. He left the government's money on the table, uh, which is probably fine with him. So uh, I think in general, once you get to the free agent market, you've probably uh, established that you're going to take something close to the highest offer. Maybe not every single time, but you're not going to give a significant discount at that point. And now, now, so the Cubs have now a starting rotation of Lester, Arietta, Hamill, uh-huh. uh, and then uh, Travis Wood, I think, uh, I don't forget exactly what he did this past year, but... He was terrible, he was and bad. probably won't be in the rotation. I think the four or five will probably be Kyle Hendricks and uh, Suyoshi Wada, with right. Edwin Jackson hanging around if they can't trade him. Right, and um, so that's that's a pretty strong start. Do you, do you see them? Because they also have a load of minor league talent. They do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was very clear that the Cubs were going to add two veteran starting pitchers this winter, and now they have. They've, with Lester and Hamill added to Arietta, I think their front three is is very good, or good enough. You know, Hamill as a number three is maybe not above average. Maybe he's, you know, solid, but not a spectacular. And Arietta basically working on, you know, four good months and a spotty track record before that. But Lester is very good. Uh, and I think, you know, you can project some decent performance from their depth guys. Uh, so overall, I think the Cubs have a, have a solid rotation. It's not the best in the league, but it's pretty good. And uh, Tommy Lestella, one notes. Yeah, all right. They do have Tommy Lestella. Uh, so I will note that the Cubs depth chart uh, has been updated. And depending on when this podcast gets posted, I'm going to work on a post this afternoon kind of comparing the Cubs and White Sox and the two Chicago teams who are going for it and which one's more ready to contend. Uh, it seems pretty clear that it's the Cubs. So I think uh, as of this afternoon or, or this morning, uh, when the depth charts have been updated and Chris Bryant was added for a half season of playing time at third base, uh, we have the Cubs now at about 34 war, which puts them almost in line with the Dodgers as like the fifth or sixth best team in the National League. Oh, oh, that's uh, that's better than they were. They're go- they're going to be, it would appear, more wins in Chicago uh, than there were last year. The the Chicago teams are going to be better. I think uh, the White Sox are interesting, and the the question is how much better they're going to be. They they can't be done yet. And the Cubs probably shouldn't be done yet either. I mean, if you look at the, the Cubs roster, there's some real strong strengths and there's some pretty big weaknesses. Like Chris Coughlin is projected to regress pretty heavily and Arizmendi Alcantara isn't expected to be a, a, a very good center fielder. Um, you know, they really could use some outfield depth and, uh, you know, perhaps that's the next, next piece for the Cubs is to make a trade, uh, to move some of their infield help for outfield help. Right. Or could their infielders Become outfielders. Right. Uh, it's certainly a possibility Chris Bryant could end up in the outfield. And I think with the acquisition of uh, Miguel Montero, Kyle Schwarber's days as a catcher are probably over. Uh, I think they were just talking, you know, a month or so ago about making him a full-time catcher next year. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense anymore now that Montero's around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't be terribly shocked if Schwarber and Bryant ended up in the outfield. But uh, I think they want to give Bryant a chance at third base at least, and and even if they did decide to convert Bryant to, to the outfield, they could probably still use another outfielder. Right. Yeah. And of course, Schwarber uh, was well, he was just selected like sixth, sixth overall. Yeah. Yeah. To, but this past year. And, yeah. Uh, this he summer. Was, yeah. His uh, well, anyway, his professional debut was a strong one. He hit really well. Yeah. Although probably I mean, still has not had a plate appearance above high A. So. Uh, no. So, yes. He's, he's not. Super close to the majors, but is a catcher with a polished bat who, you know, has some college experience. If you move him to the outfield, he's a guy who could probably move pretty quickly. Right, okay. Although uh, he won't move pretty quickly in the outfield, most likely. You're right. Uh, so we mentioned the White There's so many deals. We're not going to get to all, but uh, we mentioned you mentioned the White Sox. Of course, they now have uh, Jeff Samarja. They have Jeff Samarja and David Robertson. Those are two new players. 
Yeah, and Adam Loach and Zach Duke. R- right. Yes, and Zach Duke, who I think you surprised me at one point on the podcast, but, um, bringing to my attention the quality of his most recent season. Yeah. Uh, which was a high quality. He was uh, very good last year. He was very good last year. So between so so this team also has uh, quite a talented top three uh, with Sale, Samarja, and uh, Quintana. Uh, yeah, but I think it gets pretty bleak after that. Where we look at the Cubs and we say, okay, you know, Hendricks and Iwata and even Andrew Jackson, there's some hope uh, of a rebound. He's been good before. You look at the White Sox back end and you see Hector Noesi and uh, the remains of John Danks and Eric Johnson. It's uh, it's not so good. Right, right. So, and and is that is that the entire reason why you think they're uh, perhaps less prepared at the moment to compete in 2015? Yeah, I mean, I think they're so the back of their rotation is certainly worse. Uh, I think their bullpen is probably still a little bit worse, even with Robertson and Duke. Uh, you know, that helps, but, uh, you know, I think the, the Cubs bullpen is probably still a little bit better. Uh, and the Cubs have more high level impact talent coming. I mean, I think, you know, uh, one of the nice things about signing Lester is the Cubs didn't part with a Javier Baez or, you know, uh, Jorge Soler or Addison Russell or one of these guys who provides, uh, you know, even if not above average production, some flexibility in that, you know, the team isn't necessarily counting on uh, every single player on the roster playing well, where the White Sox needed to use Marcus Semien in order to get Jeff Samarja. Uh, and maybe you look at it and say, okay, well, Micah Johnson's okay and could potentially replace Semien. But it, it is probably a downgrade at one area in order to upgrade another, whereas the Cubs just downgraded their cash flow. Right. Uh, and then with regard to Marcus Semien, he and a number of other uh, sort of pieces – uh, went to went to the White Sox in that Justin Marcher deal. This is for you. This was another example of a, of a sort of brand name type of player. Um, uh, let's see, a, a club getting perhaps less in return than we might expect for a brand name player, but it's happened so often now that we should just regard it as as that that player's actual trade value, the brand name player's actual trade value. Yeah, I mean, I think the days of uh, the Eric Bedard trade or the Mark Teixeira trade, those are over. I mean, those were such debacles for the team, uh, you know, even going back to maybe the Ken Griffey Jr. trade, uh, where, you know, <laughs> teams traded expensive and aging players for, you know, young, cheap players who were almost as good. Uh, or, <laughs> you know, in the Griffey case where Mike Cameron was probably a better player at the time, even though uh, people didn't realize it. Uh, plus they got additional, uh, you know, players in return and saved $100 million in the process back when $100 million was a life-changing amount of money. Uh, you know, those trades were cripplingly bad for the franchises that, uh, made the mistakes of, of you know, putting in too much emphasis on the star player. And I think teams have learned. They've, uh, come around to the kind of the idea that wins are a little bit of a commodity and you don't necessarily have to uh, pay kind of the brand name price and say, okay, well, this guy is a superstar, so we're going to pay three times uh, what other players are getting, if, even if he's not three times as good. Now, I think teams like the A's are saying, you know what, we can win with a whole bunch of nobodies, uh, not too dissimilar from what the Royals did last year, where the, their best players were, uh, you know, not household names and not certainly the kinds of, uh, you know, frontline sluggers that you'd generally expect to find in a World Series contender and say, if we get 9 or 10 or 11 uh, above-average big league players, we can make a run. Now, now, on the one hand, it would appear as though uh, Billy Beans moves uh, this offseason. On the one hand, they could they could appear crazy. On the one hand, they could be seen perhaps as a as symptom of hubris, uh, where he feels as though you know Billy Bean and his uh, 
in the, the front office with Oakland feels though they can just any talent that they identify as as strong talent will automatically become uh, good uh, for the A's because the A's have somehow identified them. Um, or as Jeff Sullivan suggests, it could just be doing what the A's have to do. Um, if it is the latter of those things, what is it that the A's have to do? What what is that thing, and what how has that informed the moves we've seen this off season? I think so. The key with the teams like the A's and some of these uh, you know mid to low revenue franchises is that they're and you know we talked about a little bit about this I think on Monday is there's a, a race towards the middle where it now makes more sense to be regularly good instead of cycling between great and terrible, and it doesn't make sense for the A's to necessarily try and borrow from their future uh, in order to make themselves, you know, to push from 88 wins to 92 wins. Like, that marginal gain in this postseason format isn't worth enough for them to downgrade from, say, 87 wins to 83 wins in the in the following year. If they have to move four wins around, they're better off kind of staying in the middle uh, and just hoping, you know, to get enough, uh, basically to fire enough bullets to hit the target once rather than uh, pushing all their chips in and saying, let's go for it this year at the cost of our future, which is essentially what they did last summer when they traded Addison Russell for Jeff Samarja. Uh, I think they probably knew that they could then turn Samarja around into a, another package that they kind of liked, uh, which was one of the reasons they, they did that trade. But I wouldn't be surprised if they regretted uh, pushing in on 2014 as much as they did. And, uh, you know, this is kind of going back to their roots where they're saying, you know, let's try and be good every season or as many seasons as we can rather than cycling between great and terrible. Right. Uh, of course, well, and so this gives uh, this gives Marcus Semien, it would appear, um, the inside track to the starting shortstop job in Oakland. Yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things about this is, uh, you know, in the wild card game, I think Jed Lowry failed to make a couple plays that looked uh, fairly routine for a rangier shortstop. And I remember myself and, and other commentators noting that uh, as the, the A's uh, watched balls bounce past him, that this was probably the end of the Jed Lowry as shortstop experiment, and clearly the A's would go get a better defensive shortstop. And they might have actually gone and gotten a worse defensive shortstop, <laughs> uh, which when you have Jed Lowry is not so easy. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Semyon, not that he's a, a bad player, but, but uh, right, indications are that he's in the... He's a below. He is a below average shortstop. I mean, it, it's a question of whether he can even play the position, right? Like he was primarily a second and third baseman in Chicago, uh, and mm-hmm. didn't rank particularly well at either of those spots. I think there's a chance that Semyon could end up as like in the negative twenty fielder at shortstop, and and that experiment could not last very long. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody you could put anybody at shortstop. You can. <laughs> uh, you could put Adam Dunn at shortstop. It just you know uh, how, the tolerance of your fan base for embarrassment is and your pitching um, staff. Uh, I, I would have guessed. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean it depends on uh, how well uh, say Sonny Gray is is happy to have a guy behind him who, who can't convert balls into and maybe you know maybe something will be better than we think. Uh, we don't know enough about his defense to say that he's absolutely going to be a disaster. I would think that that's probably the most likely option. What is the uh, you, you know we've discussed this we discussed this on on Monday, um, and you've certainly evoked it before that if you're tra- attempting to evaluate a fielder's ability, it comes down to essentially 50 plays per season. What what is the if, um, you know say Marcus Semien has perfectly fine hands and a decent arm, right? Mm-hmm. But we think well maybe you know his range is not on par with other shortstops and you know when he has to go to his right and there's no chance he's going to make that play i mean what how many plays does that how many plays does that affect what is the sort of like what percentage of them are routine and aren't routine do do we know that yeah i think that's probably the trickiest part of defensive metrics is deciding how routine a routine play is or 
you know, for the ones in the margins, whether it was, you know, 85% likely of being made or 55% likely of being made, we don't really know. I mean, this is where a lot of the air bars come from. Uh, I think, you know, at shortstop, one of the other things to note is this is where the ball is hit most frequently. Shortstops do get more opportunities. So maybe uh, at shortstop versus, you know, second base or third base, maybe it's 60 plays instead of 50 or 57 plays or something. It's marginally more, uh, which is one of the reasons why lesser defenders don't play there is because their weaknesses are going to be exposed in a slightly higher quantity. It's not just that the plays are harder. Uh, you have to make a longer throw or, um, you know, get to more balls. It's that there's uh, a higher percentage of, of marginal plays made at that position than at other positions. So if Semyon, you know, does have a weakness, it's more likely to uh, be magnified at shortstop than it would be in a position where the ball was hit less often. So wait, that's the, is, I mean, is that just a function of there being more right-handed batters and they're hitting grounders to shortstop? Yeah, I think that's basically the reason ah. is that, you know, like what, like 55 or 56% of all plate appearances come from right-handed batters and ground balls are generally pulled. Yeah, that's it's so simple, Cameron. It's such a simple concept. Why did, why have I not thought about that before? I, maybe I have. Maybe I did once a while ago, a long time ago. Yeah, you I'm, I, I'm not sure why you haven't thought about it either. Um, do you? Uh, uh, let's see. We have a bunch of other uh, deals. Liriano signed. Uh, we only be, sort of barely mentioned Robertson. Uh, also, also today, well, the Astros, I guess, uh, signing Luke Eggerson just this morning, I think. Luke Eggerson and Pat Neshek. Yeah, they're loading up on relievers. They signed two fifths of a bullpen. Yeah, well, they will get that, which gives them two fifths of a bullpen. Okay. Well, no, have they had like, uh, was Pe- did Pedro Strop ever stop by there? There's someone no, like Pedro he's, Strop. He's with the Cubs, and he's actually fairly good. I think they would like that Pedro. They Strop. will. They want Pedro Strop. Yeah. No, I think they've had Jose Veras. Uh, has been has been an Astro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what about Chad Qualls? What is Chad they, Qualls? They, have... they still have Chad Qualls. Okay. He's still there. All right. What's Chad? What is Chad Qualls doing these days? Uh, getting ground balls as okay. always. All right. Yeah. Who's gonna? I mean, are they gonna be handing out uh, definitive roles or uh, at this point? I mean, who do you see? Is Chad? Was Chad? Qu- I think Chad Qualls was the closer. Will he Qualls be ended the year as the closer, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is he will kind of be the de facto closer, but you know they're probably not going to have enough saves to to go around for one guy to get fifty. So maybe three guys will get ten. Okay. What about what about Pedro Strop? What's he going to do? He's going to pitch for the Cubs. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. I see what you're doing. So yeah. he's still a Cub. Uh, he has not yet been traded. You can confirm that Pedro Strop is still a Cub. Uh, I can confirm. In that I have not heard otherwise. Okay, all right, all right. Um, uh, is that does that make sense? Uh, of course, a team that um, well, this most recent addition of the Astros is better than the ones from the year or two before. Uh, uh, then again, it's unusual to see a team that we don't think of as being in the thick of things to be spending money on relief pitchers. Is it just not cost that much to sign Nishek and Gregerson, or what, what? What is the sort of reason for this from a team that we generally view as somewhat progressive? Yes, there's two options. The first is just the kind of traditional, uh, they don't want to be as bad as they have been in the past and they're trying to, you know, restore some credibility. Uh, and you know, if you're a not very good team, not a lot of players are going to take your money. Uh, and so the easiest way to kind of add talent, uh, or upgrade your roster and make yourself somewhat more respectable is to do shorter term deals, 
which is generally the, the domain of relief pitchers. So it could be that, you know, uh, you know, starting pitchers and, and premium position players just don't want to go to Houston. So the Astros are turning to the bullpen of, you know, the, an area where they can actually sign guys who might make a significant impact. Uh, the speculative theory that I have put forward this morning uh, is that maybe the Astros are doing this as a plan to accumulate trade chips for July. I think we know in general that relievers are um, marked up very heavily at the trade deadline where almost every buyer out there is looking for bullpen depth. Uh, and there, with so many teams going for it, there just aren't really that many sellers anymore. The Astros kind of know going into the season they're probably going to be sellers in July. But right now they don't have many things to sell. I mean, like, you know, they have Chad Qualls and they have Dexter Fowler and that's about it. There's not a lot of really valuable veterans that they could move. Uh, so being in a position of strength to sell is not that useful if you don't have things that the buyers want. By adding Gregerson and Neshek, uh and, you know, kind of the ability to pay down their salaries in order to obtain even better talent, uh, the Astros could essentially flip both of these guys this summer in exchange for, you know, some decent young talent, assuming they both pitch well, uh, and essentially have bought prospects with their free agent money, which you can't do any other way. Right, and, and I think that you, you have pointed out that pitchers are worth, what is it, almost like twice as much per win at the deadline? Yeah, I mean, that was like, uh, I did a post in August looking at kind of the, the the deals that we had seen to try and estimate the cost of a win in midseason. And it looked like it was basically double the cost of the win the prior offseason. It was, you know, a study in one season with a, f- a handful of trades. So I wouldn't say that it's definitively proven. But I think in general we understand that prices are higher uh, in July, and it would make sense considering there's no alternative market. You can't go sign free agents. Uh, you have to make trades if that's how you want to upgrade your roster, and teams have more information about where they stand and uh, in terms of the playoff run. Uh, so it would make sense that there would be a, a higher price per win, and it seems like maybe double the cost of a win uh, is a reasonable estimate. And if that's true, and the Astros are paying, say, 6 or $7 million a win to buy the Gregerson and Neshek in the in the off season in November or December, and then they can sell him for thirteen or fourteen or fifteen million a win in July. Uh, they might come out ahead by quite a good margin. You know, you invoked Dexter Fowler briefly. He is a he is a curious player. He is a curious player. He is he's so. I mean, physically, uh, he is tall and lean and athletic, and you would say, oh, this player is going to be a good defender maybe he's raw and uh, but he his if you look at him statistically he's almost just the opposite of that he's always walking almost 12 13 percent of the time he's got excellent plate discipline uh and yet his feet i mean his fielding numbers are miserable dave cameron he's basically got old player skills and a young player body yeah yeah, that's yeah. A, that is a strange player i mean i is there a comp is there a comparable do you remember i mean is this like a jeremy hermita yeah, but Hermita wasn't that good of an athlete. I mean, Hermita yeah. was, you know, a high walk guy, uh, but wasn't ever considered a, you know, plus center fielder. I played very little center field, mostly right. a corner outfielder. Uh, I think with Fowler, he is one reason to be a little suspicious of the eye test. When people say, I would rather just watch this guy run and make my judgments that way, uh, I think Dexter Fowler is a pretty good counter for why that isn't always such a good idea. You watch him play, and you're like, man, this guy should be really good defensively. We now are on what, five or six years of data that suggests that Dexter Fowler might be, you know, really not very good in the outfield. Right, and well, and uh, I think, uh, well, Chris, Mike Petriello, um, as someone who covers the, the Dodgers in some depth, uh, would be the one to denote this. But I think Matt Kemp, I mean, Matt Kemp defensively, 
even if you attempt to isolate certain periods when you you suspect that he was healthy again, he is also quite miserable. Uh, yeah, he sucks. <laughs> but again, especially relative to to the physical skills. Yeah, I mean, I think his physical skills have declined quite a bit. Right. I mean, with Lester you're, or uh, with Kemp, you're looking at a guy who's um, uh, knees and, and back and uh, parts of his body that allow you to be athletic are deteriorating fairly quickly. Right. Was he was he ever good in center field? Uh, you know, I don't think he was ever more better than average, but he was not a total disaster earlier in his career. He okay. could play center field without embarrassing himself when he wanted to right. uh, in his early 20s. Now, pushing 30, he, he is an embarrassment when he wears a glove. I, I will say it is it is remarkable. No, you're uh, – well, not only are you – you're a couple years younger than me. Maybe you're 32 or 3? 34. Oh, you're 34. Wow, Dave Cameron yeah. getting up there. And you've also uh, – of course, you've also um, had cancer. So there's there are a couple uh, asterisks here. I'm well into my decline phase. <laughs> a couple asterisks here. But it is amazing once you hit – I don't know if it's sudden, but um, uh, I've uh, I've recently been coaching a basketball team, as I've shared with you, off air, and even just from doing that, uh, my body my body hurts in ways that when I was a younger person, um, I I mean it would just I would have worked out twice as hard and not felt anything. You're getting yourself a hernia blowing a whistle. <laughs> well, no, sometimes you know I'll like uh, sit I'll sub in for a couple of plays if we're a shorter guy or whatever. Uh, yeah, but my body's just like, no, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, I actually am, am, am participating, not coaching, in a, uh, a men's basketball league, uh, and you know, we play full court uh, with few subs. Generally, we have five or six guys. Uh, last week we had seven, or I guess Monday we had seven, so we had two subs. But usually, you're playing almost the entire game. Uh, running up and down the court, you definitely can tell that we're old. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would, I would make the point. I am not, a, nor have I ever been a premium athlete, and so I obviously. Yeah, you know, that I can confirm. <laughs> you can hold these people yeah. to a different standard, but uh, yeah, your body just, uh, just doesn't stick around. Yeah, I think uh, there's a reason why what the players peak in their mid twenties, and it, it makes sense. We're all like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, especially the defense, I can imagine, because defense. Uh, I mean, besides the sort of intuitive qualities of it, right? A lot of it is like bursts of speed and will, and those are two things that I think you lack as you get older. Yeah, uh, probably the the former more than the latter. But Matt yeah. Case's Kemp, the case Matt Kemp's case, yeah. uh, I think his uh, will to play defense has also waned greatly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Can you explain? I mean, if you're a coach, do you? I mean, this is this is not a great question, but. Can you just explain to a player you sit him down and be like, you you make runs with the bat, but you also can can make runs with the glove. It's just as important. I think you can explain that to a player who's good uh, defensively, and you can <laughs> encourage them that they're being a valuable contributor. I think it's more difficult. To, like I think if you sat down with David Ortiz and tried to explain to him the positional adjustment and why he was hurting his team defensively even without playing the field. That that is not a conversation that's going to yeah. go very well because I think in general humans are kind of programmed to understand what our job description is and evaluate ourselves solely by that. And so David Ortiz's life perspective and probably the correct one is that he is paid to hit home runs. That's yeah. his job. He's uh, supposed to go up there, swing the bat four times a game, and do as much damage as he can. 
And, you know, playing defense is just not part of the deal. And yeah. so he's not going to think of himself as a negative defender because that's not what the Red Sox were asking him to do. It would be like uh, evaluating uh, you or me on our ability to, uh, you know, raise small children. Mm-hmm. We haven't done it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would I would strongly advise against it. You, uh, sorry, what's that? You raising small children. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Ability for the child. Yeah, right, right. I know that I would leave. I think I've said this before. I would definitely leave a child, much like you might a cup of coffee on top of a car. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, have you done that with your dog yet? No. Our dog's very whiny in the car, though. Very. She gets very anxious. We bought yeah. something called a thunder shirt. Are you familiar yes, with I, that? I have seen those. Yeah. It's. It, it was an embarrassing thing to buy. <laughs> it was. It's a very silly device, and I don't even know if it works. The thunder shirt. So we'll see. Yeah, dogs have uh, interesting anxiety issues. Yesterday, I took liberty for a walk uh, on a, a path near here that goes down to a horse farm, mm-hmm. and uh, she'd never seen horses before. And they, you know, they were just eating grass, minding their own business. She did not like the giant dogs that were <laughs> yeah, scaring the car such, out of her. <laughs> they're such big dogs. Yeah, they were like so much bigger than her. Yeah, uh, I finally got her to not be. Uh, insanely scared. I got her down to just sort of scared. Yeah, but that that was his, uh, that was the best we could move. Yeah, yeah, our yeah our dog did see. Uh, our we, we introduced our dog to horses. I mean, for like fifty to a hundred feet away. Yeah. And she was like, at first she was like, oh, we're gonna go check this out. And then she kind of saw one of them move, and she was like, oh no, why would yeah. I? Why would I do that thing? <laughs> yeah, I, at one point the horse uh, neighed, as yeah. horses will do, yeah. and Liberty thought that she would die. <laughs> she she thought she was just yeah, her life was ending because yeah. the horse ten feet away from her had made a noise. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. funny and so damn amusing. I cannot. Our dog is so adorable and amusing, and I feel embarrassed <laughs> by the amount of feelings I have, and yet they're there. Yeah. No. Well, don't be embarrassed. Hey, a lot of uh, feedback, Cameron, with regard to not this most recent podcast we did, but last Monday's about uh, power lines in New England. Yeah, people really sided with you on that one. Well, I don't know if they sided with me. I just, I just, again, I have no expertise in the subject. I just know that it that even though we have big storms, um, power outages are not frequent. That's all, that's the only thing I knew, Cameron. Right. I did not know that. Right. I mean, I guess I knew that, but. I see, I guess my experience with the Northeast and the, and bad weather is what I see on the news when they're like, 12 feet of snow has fallen and no one has any power. So I yeah. just assume that, you know, when snow falls, you lose power. Yeah, but the point, like if you're watching the news in North Carolina or you're know, watching the Weather Channel, they're always going to point out the one place that doesn't have power. Yeah, right. But there are that's a lot of news, places, right? there are a lot of places that are getting snow, right? That's it's, it's selection bias. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The there, every time there's probably some community that doesn't have power, but they're not going to be like, so, uh, Concord, New Hampshire, again, for the for the 50th consecutive storm, has retained power. Uh, yeah, they they could do that with maybe like Amish country. They could be like, this part of Pennsylvania, still yeah. no power still on no purpose, power. but they still don't have any power. They continue not to have power. <laughs> Actually, it was a, there must be some equivalent in baseball, because um, we talked about like how North Carolina or Portland, Oregon fall apart when there's a when there's a storm, because they just don't, they can't justify the expense. And someone brought this up in the comment section. They can't justify the expense of having all the the relevant yeah. equipment right. for just a couple storms. I don't know what the equivalent is in baseball, but there is some sort of like, uh, there is some sort of like how much you're willing to spend. I guess it's the marginal value that it would provide. I think the probably the best uh, comparison would be like the Tampa Bay Rays stadium. <laughs> like, they can't justify having a nice one because no one comes. No one comes to it. So, so why have a nice stadium when, when it's going empty anyway? Yeah. Would, would really 
Um, is there a place you could build it in Tampa where people would go? Well, they're not going to look in St. Pete's. That's the news uh, I think came out Monday that they're going to look across the bay and look in the St. Petersburg area, which I think is uh, where more of the money is. Okay. All right. Yeah, you got to find that money. Yeah, you're right. You kind of if you're going to build a hundred million or several hundred million dollar sports stadium, you want to put it in a, a place where people who have the funds to attend can can reach it. Is that the philosophy behind uh, Atlanta building in Cobb County? Yeah, they're going to where all the white suburban uh, rich people are. Hmm. Yeah. Those are the people who have money. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of an unfortunate uh, reality, and you know, I think you could argue that you know perhaps uh, a you know Turner Field could have worked or a downtown Atlanta ballpark could have worked, but you know, teams are businesses, and they're going to go where their customers are. And hmm. unfortunately, for uh, you know. Um, Diversity, uh, most most baseball customers are suburban white folks. Yeah, there is sort of a – there is something that's very appealing to me, and I don't know necessarily how it's accurate, but like definitely stories of – from like older older people who grew up in Brooklyn and, you know, would go to a Dodgers game for like, you know, less than a dollar or, you know, they were kids who snuck in in like the fifth inning or, you know, like the ushers let them in. That's a very – there's a romantic notion to that. Right, that doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, yeah I remember even one time trying. I think I was led into. Uh, it would have been like 1997 or eight. I was led into a Red Sox game in like the ninth inning, but that's it. Uh, okay, Cameron, we've this conversation has devolved. It has, yes. and I have a chat to do. Okay, yes, you do. Yes, uh, let's yeah. let you get to that. Uh, yeah. But uh, thank you uh, on behalf of every listener. Uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Let's, let's stick around for a second. That's Dave Cameron. Though, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.